Pilate ordered that Jesus be taken away and whipped. The soldiers made a crown from some thorny branches and put it on Jesus' head and put a purple robe around him. Then they came to him many times and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and hit him in the face. Again Pilate came out and said to them, Look, I am bringing Jesus out to you. I want you to know that I find nothing against him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the leading priests and the guards saw Jesus, they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! But Pilate answered, Crucify him yourselves, because I find nothing against him. The leaders answered, We have a law that says he should die because he has said that he is the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back inside the palace and asked Jesus, Where do you come from? But Jesus did not answer him. Pilate said, You refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the power to set you free and the power to have you crucified? Jesus answered, The only power you have over me is the power given to you by God. The man who turned me in to you is guilty of a greater sin. After this, Pilate tried to let Jesus go, but some in the crowd cried out, Anyone who makes himself king is against Caesar. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. When Pilate heard what they were saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at the place called the Stone Pavement. In the Hebrew language, the name is Gabbatha. It is about noon on preparation day of Passover week. Pilate said to the crowd, Here is your king. They shouted, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Pilate asked them, Do you want me to crucify your king? The leading priest answered, The only king we have is Caesar. So Pilate handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. Chapter 19, we are at the end. We're both at the end of John and we're at the end pretty close of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus has just been put on trial a few hours before by the Sanhedrin. So this is the ruling Jewish council of the Jews. Here is a very simple map. So Jerusalem in the first century, so this is about 33 AD. There's two people in charge. And it makes things, bless you, it makes things very confusing. The Jews are in charge religiously and culturally of their people, and they have a council called the Sanhedrin, which is a ruling body of 70 plus one elders. So Sanhedrin, Hedron, this is 70. 70 of the most respected and religious men in the Jewish faith, plus the high priest, who right now, today, on this date, is Caiaphas, Joseph Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas, the great high priest, who was kicked out of office by Rome, by the second group of people in charge. Rome is in charge of Judea, so Jerusalem is the capital city of Judea, a region, think of it like a state, <coughs> in Israel, uh, or Palestine. And we get the name Palestine from the Philistines. Um, And it's what the Romans called this region, Palestine. Judea is ruled by Rome. Rome is the great empire of the world. Everyone's heard of the Roman Empire. They uh, They are reaching their zenith of power during the first century. In fact... It'll only be in the early 2nd century that Rome will will control the most land it will ever control in its history, and then it will be a slow decline from there on. So we're really close to the height of Roman power. Rome is ruled or governed by a governor who is not Jewish. His name is Pontius Pilate. Last week we talked about him. Um, Pontius means from the sea, and Pilate means armed with a spear or a sword. He has a terrible relationship with the Jews. He was put in charge to govern them. And 
you know, you have to keep in mind, again, I, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit here. When Jesus is born, a man, a, a Jew, is in charge named Herod. Herod, who we call now Herod the Great, who was, a, he claimed to be of Jewish descent. Um, <clears throat> he ruled this entire region of Palestine. After he dies, the region is broken up into sections and different people are put in charge. His, his heirs are put in charge of different regions. Well, that goes horribly wrong in Judea. And the so-called king of Judea is deposed just a few years later, and they decide, the Rome, deci- Rome decides to put a Roman in charge of this region. So we have a Roman governor in charge of a Jewish state. <clears throat> and you can see here in this passage and in the one we just read, the conflict that you, it's very obvious between Pontius Pilate, the Roman Empire, and the Jews, the chief priests. Let's, re- let's look at this here. <clears throat> It's fascinating. Pilate is obviously saying that he finds no grounds for the crucifixion and and execution of Jesus. Okay? Now, again, why are the Jews why are the Jews really trying to kill Jesus here? Tell me the reasons. Jesus dead. Tell me the real reasons they want him dead. He's too popular with the people. He is too popular. I'm sorry, but when you're in charge, you want to be the popular one. And if other people are usurping your popularity, that's a problem. That's a threat for you. What else? If you do what he says to do, you lose power. Ooh. His message... And explain that, because I want to make sure I write it the right way. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, everything he's teaching is counterculture at the time. Yes. And current culture puts the Sanhedrin, and especially the high priest, at the very top. And they control the power, they control the money, Mm -hmm. they have their way of living. And if they give in to this Jesus and, and say, all right, you are who you say you are, then everything that they have should crumble and go away. He is, his, he is a, let me say this, I'm going to say this in a really college way, existential threat <laughs> to leader. Ben knows. Good. Come on, come up here and write this. You know all this stuff. I don't, even, I don't even know what this means. You tell me. I don't know. He is a philosophical existential threat. Hey, look, folks, in the whole history of the world, who have often been the people who have the greatest hatred leveled against them? Is it the people who have... It's not usually the people who have money and who have armed forces and have a gun. It's the people who say things that threaten you personally. Who do you hate the most in this world? The people that say things that convict you, that say things that go against your lifestyle, that say things that are a threat to your beliefs. He is turning Judaism completely on its head. He is turning it over. He is saying things that threaten the very foundation of the Jewish faith. Now, they see it as threats. They see him as a threat. Now, these are the reasons why they want him gone. 
what do they what do they charge him with to get him killed? Now remember, I also said, yeah, you might think, oh, okay, I'm in antiquity, just go and stone the guy, right? Find someone in the middle of the night to go and kill him. They could have done that. <clears throat> However, Jesus, remember, a week earlier has entered Jerusalem as what? Hero. A hero. How many people came out to welcome him to Jerusalem? A lot. Good call. That's a good call because we don't really know that. That's the wrong answer. That's, oh, see? Oh. We don't really know because the Gospels don't record that there were 1,437 Jews there, right? We don't know. There wasn't a, there wasn't a, uh, <clears throat> there weren't cameras on the streets and drones overhead to count everyone. What we do think is there were hundreds, perhaps thousands of people who welcomed Jerusalem a week earlier, welcomed Jesus as their king, their Messiah. That is a huge threat to the leadership. But remember I told you, the Jews did not have the power to execute a fellow Jew. Now, why would Rome say, you're not allowed to execute people on your own? It gives them too much power. It gives them too much power. You can't give them Everything's that much power. Everything's all about power with this. You know, power. Rome has to keep it's a certain all about level power. power, and the Jews want to keep a certain level. Power, he is a power threat. The Jews have one instance in which they are allowed to execute someone, and that is if a Gentile, <clears throat> where's my blue marker? Here it is. <clears throat> we'll say that the temple is probably somewhere around here. Okay, this is their temple. There were, there were courtyards within the temple that were based on your status or class within society. A Gentile is allowed to roam the courtyards. What is a Gentile? Non-Jew. Non-Jew. Gentiles were allowed to meander in the temple courtyards. Why? Yes, this is where all the money was. You're more than welcome to come into our temple courtyard and buy something or to give money to the temple. You are absolutely not under pain of death allowed to enter into the inner temple courtyard. That is only for Jews. And the Jews, one area where they could kill someone was if you're a Gentile and you tried to come into the inner temple. That was a religious thing, as much as a power thing. And there were even signs posted here on the inner wall to say, if you're a Gentile, and you better believe it was in many languages, don't enter on pain of death. All other reasons, they were not allowed to kill people. Now, I said, well, they could have just stoned him in the middle of the night. Or remember, he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is over here on the Mount of Olives. Why didn't they kill him there? Many Jews loved him. I mean, back to yes. the whole point, he was a hero, and Jews were following him, and they didn't want to be the bad guy. That's it. Angela, <laughs> gold star. I could not have said it better. And of course, I'm right. Uh, so I appreciate you saying that. <clears throat> you are the teacher. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> if they had killed him in the middle of the night, you better believe there would have been a huge uprising because there were still many people who believed in him. Now, it's not at this point, the tide has turned to some degree. And it's not as much that there were so many people on Jesus' side, but there's a lot of people that hated the Sanhedrin, and they hated the aristocracy. Why? These were not common people who were in charge, folks. These were the wealthiest and the most powerful of the Jews. And to some degree, the people who were willing to kiss the beep of Roman's butt, right? Well, maybe I shouldn't have beeped the wrong part there. (laughs) 
They, they were willing to do whatever it took to suck up to, 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 to the Romans, okay? What happens to people who suck up to the leaders? You love them? You hate them. You hate their guts. You better believe that if they had killed Jesus in the middle of the night, the people of Judea would have heard about it and they would have said, you are, you are going about things way wrong. You did not have the right to do that. And don't you think that that gets them in bad with Rome because they're doing something Thank that you. Rome doesn't like, right? Remember, or maybe you don't remember, I think I've mentioned this once or twice, Pilate has already had a very, very rough time with the Jews at this point. He rules from about, and I'm going to, I'm going to make this wrong, it's somewhere around 25 to 35. It may have been 6 to 36, what have you. He rules for about 10 years. As soon as he is installed as governor, he takes the, the symbols of Roman leadership, which are eagles, which are images of the Caesars, and he instills them around the temple courtyard. What the heck do you think the Jews are going to say about that? Remember, they are very clear. You cannot have graven images, in some, in some case, of anything in the Jewish culture. You certainly cannot have graven images of, of Caesars worshipped as gods posted in the temple. There is an immediate armed uprising when Pontius Pilate becomes governor of Judea in about 25. And he is rebuked not only by the Jewish people, but by the Roman leadership. You cannot stir things up there, dude. You're making things a hornet's nest. So he relents and he takes what they're called the Roman standards away. But you can see that there's been this great tension. He is nearing the end of his reign here, by the way. Okay, And it has been a, it has been a rough one. <clears throat> The Jews know they have to legitimize the death of Jesus so that the blood is not on their hands either. Look, everyone's looking around. I don't want the blood of Jesus on our hands because then we'll get blamed for it. Rome doesn't want it. The Jewish leadership doesn't want it. They want to try and trump him up on charges that will get him killed. So I called this the real reasons Jesus, they wanted Jesus dead. What were the charges that led to his death? What was, the, what was the ultimate charge that got Jesus killed? Treason. treason. And what do you mean by treason? Well, it says that um, everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So, I mean, if you're claiming yourself as king, yeah. that's about as treason. This is, I, I am opposing, not only opposing the Roman government, but I am saying that I'm in charge. How many despots of the world like to hear that other people within their community say they're in charge? Make no mistake, Rome is a, is a despotic government. Despotes is the Greek. It means an absolute ruler. An absolute ruler. Rome doesn't want anyone else to threaten them. If you were, this happened all the time in the Roman Empire. I mean, you can believe this. Every day, I guarantee you, somewhere in the empire, someone was executed for threatening Rome's government, either through armed rebellion or through their words. Has Jesus raised an army here? Not an armed one. See, this is the thing. There is no armed army. And you remember in the garden, just a few, you know, last chapter, Peter himself was ready to fight the war he thought was coming. As soon as the guards from the temple and the chief priests show up to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do? 
pulls out his sword. He goes, dude, it is on. This war is on. The war that he thought he was waiting for. And the first thing he does is take a swipe at Malchus, uh, one of the assistants. And, and, and instead of cutting his head off like he wanted to do, Malchus, you know, smartly ducks or gets out of the way, gets his ear cut off. Jesus rebukes him. He goes, dude, this is not what we're here for. Put your sword away. Put your sword away. And at that moment, it is clear that Jesus has not been trying to raise a physical army, an armed army, but it doesn't matter. They don't, the Jews can, can talk their way out of this. And in fact, you remember in the, in the kind of sham midnight trial that the Sanhedrin puts on and they put Jesus on, on trial, they ask Jesus, are you claiming to be king of the Jews? And are you raising an army to fight us in Rome? What did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? Remember that? Well, he was like, why are you questioning me when this yes. isn't how you usually do things? How do they usually do things? They have witnesses that the accusers or the yes. accused is silent. No they don't say anything. No trial in antiquity did you ever call <laughs> the accused to the stand. Why? Well, they're just going to deny it. You always called witnesses, and usually you called you called very highly prestigious witnesses, right, who were, were highest, of high standing in the community. You asked two or three of them what they thought. Their testimony condemned you. Jesus said, look, you can go ask people, was I raising an army? Did I ever claim to threaten Rome? And he knew the truth, which was, the answer is no. He was never doing any of that. Now, of course, the Sanhedrin finds a couple of people to lie about it, which is what they usually do. And they trump him up. So the charge here is treason. But Pontius Pilate right here, you can see what he is going through. He clearly sees that there is no threat. I kind of feel for Pilate, okay. this whole thing. I mean, sometimes he's made out to be the villain. I don't think he really is. Um, you know, from, from his perspective, number one, he's a Roman ruler. Rome is, like you said, I mean, they're so spread out. Rome is, is telling all their governors you better keep the peace because we don't want to have to use extra troops, extra supplies, extra resources to take retake over an area yeah. that we already spent the resources to take over. You better control it because we got to use those somewhere yeah. else as we're expanding. This is it. And, you know, Pilate's sitting here and saying, well, there's this Jewish guy. You know, mm -hmm. to him, he's not God. He's not even part of that religion. He's not, right. I mean... He's just part of the problem, mm -hmm. um, and these these rulers, the local Jewish people, are stirring everybody up, causing a riot. The last thing Pilate wants is to have word get back to Rome that hey, you know this Pilate guy who screwed up with those symbols and things, and we had to mm -hmm. kind of slap him on the hands before. I'm guessing in Rome you don't get slapped twice. <laughs> You know, yeah. the patience of Caesar is pretty small. Right. Um, and so Pilate's backed into a corner. It's mm -hmm. like, hey, this guy's innocent. Yep. How about we kill Barabbas? And, you know, they're saying, right. oh, release Barabbas. Right. Um, can, can I? Mm -hmm. That's really, that's really good because I, I see like this, this power struggle here between Pilate and, um, Pilate and the Sanhedrin with, Jesus in the middle. In fact, so the Sanhedrin puts it back. 
I mean, you can watch political leaders do this exact mm -hmm. same thing. Mm -hmm. There's just a whole bunch of finger pointing. Everybody wants credit for when mm -hmm. things go well, and nobody wants to take responsibility for anything yep. else. So the Sanhedrin puts it on the pilot by saying, hey, you can't be a king. Mm -hmm. That's treason. Mm -hmm. So he brings him out and says, hey, here's your king, knowing mm -hmm. that if they answer that, now he gets to go after them. Right? <laughs> This so, is this is a this is a great point. This, this is a great point. Finger pointing yep. That, <clears throat> yep. And all they're trying to do is, is yep. buck responsibility. Look, he just just last last chapter, Pilate tries to buck that onto Herod. Now remember, Jesus is from Galilee. Okay, Galilee is that northern province in the north of Palestine, right? Herod Antipas who is still the kind of Jewish king of Galilee, is in Jerusalem. Why? Why is, why is both Herod, Antipas, and Pilate in Jerusalem today? Passover. It's the Passover. This is the biggest <clears throat> celebration of the entire year for the Jews. And make no mistake about it, the Jews are a feisty, fiery people. You don't want to be out of the party when they start to party. You want to be there. It's like the chaperones, right? <laughs> You got all your teenagers that are going to be partying tonight, right? You know, at your place. You want to make sure there's plenty of adult supervision there because things could get out of hand, if you know what I mean. And that is exactly why they're both here. <clears throat> Pilate, just a few hours earlier, sends Jesus to Herod saying, dude, he's your problem. He's Galilean. You're the king of Galilee. You deal with it. And what does Herod do? Trying to get Jesus to do some magic tricks. And then he hey, Jesus. Whoa. <laughs> do a magic trick for me, right? So then he's like, fine, if you're not going to entertain me, then go away. That's what he says on the outside. Well, if you're not going to do any miracles for me, then get out. I think he was really scared of Jesus, and we talked about this. There was a whole history here of Herod and John the Baptist and Jesus, and Herod didn't want to do it. So to um, the point here that, that um, James is making, Herod wants to shirk responsibility. No one wants, Everyone wants him killed, kind of. No one wants to take credit or, or um, leadership for it. Well, I think, Brian, that's the thing is yep. that do they really want Jesus killed or do they want power for themselves? Mm -hmm. Well, we just said this is Jesus is a threat to their power. Well, and I get rid of the guy. I, and I also I think the thing is, is that while Jesus is an existential threat to their power specifically, they also recognize that they can shift him around and use him against Pilate to gain <clears throat> power back from Pilate mm -hmm. because Pilate's got to do something. We don't have to. Gosh, this is like Survivor. It's like, isn't it? Isn't this like Survivor? It is this complete, completely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But is that not what they thought the whole time? Is that he was going to come and raise an army, take over Rome, right. and reestablish the Jewish culture as the supreme? Sanhedrin did, but not Pilate. Pilate, again, to touch like what Steve His said. disciples thought that, though. Right. But, see, like Pilate said, that Pilate's not part of this. He doesn't much care about the religion side, right? I think, and and actually, had he been part of it, he'd have probably known exactly who the problem was. It wasn't Jesus, and they'd have been in trouble. This but he doesn't see it from that point of view. Mm -hmm. So he's like, I just got to get rid of someone. This kind of goes to the point too that, like, they don't want the Messiah to come, really, because if the Messiah comes yeah. and yes. takes over, they don't. Even if Jesus, yeah. even if they knew Jesus was the Messiah. They don't want him to come because then they're not in power anymore. Now, that's what they want. Your comment that the, that the Jews didn't want the Messiah to come might seem weird to us today who know what Jesus represented as a Messiah. For us, 
The Messiah represents grace, peace, a new kingdom where there's no suffering, there's no death, there's righteousness. Who was the Messiah to a first century Jew? We've talked about this. A leader, king. He was a king. He was a king, a Davidic king. Now remember, and we'll talk about this in a second. God made it clear, if you want a monarchy, okay Israel, you want a monarchy, then this is the way it has to be. We started with Saul, that was a huge, that was a huge problem for the, for the Israelites. So he decided to instill a Davidic king on the throne. He said, from now on, if you want a king, it has to be in the line of David. That ends with the Babylonian conquest of, of Israel or, or Judah in 586 BC. For almost 600 years, there has been no Davidic king on the throne in Israel, okay? If you bring this back, that changes everything. Who suddenly loses power here if we bring a Davidic king back? These guys. And, and they're, they are granted this power under mm -hmm. Rome, under CGC. They this say it's part. okay if you this have this power. Because they say right here, we have no king but Caesar. Mm -hmm. Meaning, we'll go ahead and so glad submit to that authority this. because you've allowed us to still have ours. Ave Caesar. Which is kind of strange in and of itself because you'd never hear that group say that. Yes. I mean, that's the whole This is it. It goes back to what there's... Jesus was saying, though, yes. about how he's forcing, how Pilate's forcing them to say, like, oh, we love Caesar, right? Because normally they would never say that, right? They have their fingers Caesar. crossed behind their back. <laughs> yes. Guys, well, I'm so glad you brought this point, up. Though, mm -hmm. is that, like, they don't want, they don't want, really want a Messiah. Yeah. Hey, you know what? That didn't change. We all mm -hmm. love Jesus. Ain't nobody right reading their Bible. We yep. love Jesus. Nobody goes to church. Mm -hmm. We love Jesus. You can't support anything. And when push that comes to shove, what do you say? You say things like, there is no king but Caesar. Who yeah. in their right mind as a Jew, knowing what you know of even the Pentateuch, <clears throat> folks, you don't even have to read pretty much anything else in here except the first five books of the Old Testament. Who in their right mind as a, as a devout Jewish leader would say there is no king but a Roman pagan Gentile? The, the same Jews that when they got out of Egypt and were on their way were like, oh, just we didn't really want to leave Egypt. Yes, that's <laughs> it, Ken. That's it. <laughs> it was all cool there. You know, was so making bricks. It's so good. Let's not forget, I mean, like, like, you know, you're, you're saying, well, who in their right mind would yep. say something yeah. like that? Let's not forget they are fulfilling a prophecy here that they are going to kill Jesus and yes. bring mercy to us. Like, let's yep. not forget that. Mm -hmm. Like, those underlining issues, mm -hmm. yes, are true, but they're still, like, look, fulfilling prophecy, they got to kill Jesus. And, and, and note, too, that the author, remember, I, I make a big point of this in this class. We assume a lot of things about, about the Bible. One thing you have to ask yourself is, what is the author trying to tell us here? And why does he write certain things? Here, Pilate asked, shall I crucify your king? The author doesn't say the Jews said we have no king but Caesar. He didn't say that the crowd said we have no king but Caesar. Who did he specifically say said we have no king but Caesar? Or chief priests. 
he, this is like a knife that cuts to the heart of the Jewish aristocracy and the Jewish leadership. That is the, one of the most condemning things in the entire New <clears throat> Testament. Make no mistake about it, and the author has put it right here. He wants you to know that the people who have been chosen, in a sense, by God to lead the people are now, in a sense, saying the most blasphemous thing they could possibly say. That's like, that's like your president of your country saying, there is no king but the, the country next door, his leader, right? There is no king but China's king or, or Russia's king or something like to that effect if you're an American. <clears throat> what? Well, I think the Sanhedrin yeah. would be out of power and yeah. they would be killed yep. by Caesar, by Rome, if they did say something different. Yeah. It's interesting because you have to remember the Sanhedrin is composed, and, and we're talking, we're going off here because it's really important. There's essentially three groups of Jews that are active, we think, during this period. There is the <coughs> Essenes. The Essenes are that weird sect out in the desert that we found their documents in the 1940s called the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Essenes are essentially a monastic or monk-like order of very orthodox Jews who lived separate from the rest of the Jews because they believed that the Jews in charge in Jerusalem were corrupt. And they were right. <laughs> so they separated themselves from society. They are, they are not mentioned in the New Testament, but we know for a fact that they were, they were um, very active in this period. Then we have the Pharisees. Now, you know, any student of Christianity or the New Testament has heard the word Pharisee. These were a, um, these were a religiously orthodox yet also kind of, um, how do I put this, spiritually liberal group who believe very much in the word of the law, but they accepted not just the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament as their canon, they also accepted all of the writings of the prophets, okay, and the, and the other writings. They believed in things like the resurrection, angels, spiritual warfare, and an afterlife. These were the common people, to some degree, and these were very popular. Pharisees were very popular. These were kind of the outcasts. <clears throat> then you got the last group, Sadducees. I probably just completely messed up the spelling there, Sadducees. These were the aristocracy, aristocracy. College boy, what does aristocracy mean? <laughs> aristocracy means the wealthy elite. You know what it means. These were the leaders, these were the wealthy elite, these were the people who had money and power. These were people who kissed the you-know-what of Rome. The ring. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> we'll use that. The ring. Center of the ring. <laughs> That's good. Um, the Sadducees were not popular. They were the minority, but they were in charge because they were willing to do whatever Rome wanted them to do to stay into power. They kissed the ring of Rome so that they could stay in power. All of the high priests of the first century are Sadducees, okay? Because Rome knew they could trust them because they would do whatever Rome wanted. It's kind of interesting. The reason I'm talking about all this is because after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, after the first Jewish-Roman war, the Sadducees disappear from history. 
not only were they were the aristocracy, but they were the collaborators with Rome. They also believed staunchly in the temple worship. There is no temple after 70 AD. There is no aristocracy. And the people have risen up against Rome. These guys disappear from history, okay? We never see them again. The Pharisees actually go on to define Judaism as we know it today. Uh, they, they become much more powerful and popular after this. I find it hard to logically understand yep. why a religion, Judaism, would have as its high priest someone who doesn't believe in the spiritual realm. Mm -hmm. This is a fascinating point. Yep, this is fascinating. We should actually have a class on the, the post-exilic world for the Jews because it explains a lot about how they came to believe all of that. Um, I don't want to get into it today, but suffice it to say that after Babylon destroys Jerusalem in 586, to the time of Jesus, a lot of things change for Judaism, a lot. And, and very little of it is recorded in our canon of scriptures because a lot of it happens after Malachi. If you want to remember, Malachi, we think, is the last writing in the Old Testament by the authoritative prophets of God, which happens in probably the 5th century BC, maybe 4th century. So we have hundreds of years of Judaism that evolves. You, what, what ends up happening is you end up in this place. You end up here with this strangeness. <clears throat> Let's continue on. I want to point out, let me see a couple more things here. You would have, Jesus answered, I, this is one of my favorite passages of the entire Bible. Pilate goes, don't you realize I have the power to either free you or crucify you? Imagine you're in Jesus' shoes, and a lot of Christians have been in Jesus' shoes over the past 2,000 years, with some horrible person condemning them for their faith, um, punishing them for their faith, saying, recant your faith. Don't you know I have power over you to let you go or to kill you. And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it was not given to you from above. Uh-oh. <laughs> Which uh -oh. is really awesome, yeah. because we've been talking about who's submitting to yeah. whose authority here, and all of a sudden you see Jesus mm -hmm. completely submit himself yeah. to a higher authority. Yeah. That's amazing. This is awesome. It really is. And, and you, know, you know, I think some people will read the next line and go, therefore the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Now you might at your surface immediately go to Judas there. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is referring to Caiaphas here. Because it wasn't Judas that handed him over to the Romans. Judas just handed Jesus, Jesus over to the Jews. Right? The Jews found him. The Jews chose to hand him over to to Rome. I think he, this is a condemnation of Caiaphas as the high priest here. I, I could be completely wrong about that. Okay, we need to move on because we have, we have a little bit left to read here. Let's go ahead and read, I think this is essentially 16b. Um, I think we have to read the whole thing. It's a little bit, but I want to get through it all. So if we could read 16b through the end, which is 42, please. Then Pilate turns Jesus over them to them to be crucified. 
So they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went to the place of the skull, in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, so that many people could read it. Then the leading priests objected and said to Pilate, Change it from the King of the Jews to, He said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate replied, No, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, Rather than tear it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing, so that what is, so that is what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, and to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It was the day of preparation, and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath, because it was a Passover week. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you also may continue to believe. These things happened in fulfillment of the scriptures that say, Not one of his bones will be broken, and they will look on the one they pierced. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices and long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so, because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Reactions. I think it's interesting when Jesus has brothers and sisters that he says, you know, for John to take care of his mother. And then it says that John from that time on did take care of her. So even though mm-hmm. Jesus' siblings, at least a few of them that we know for sure, mm-hmm. came to believe in him, that they didn't take care of their mother, but that it was John. 
I think that's because John was the one who was faithful. Mm-hmm. You know, John didn't desert him when he was taken in the garden. Mm-hmm. And John was there next to him at the cross. Mm-hmm. The other disciples weren't there. Mm-hmm. His brothers weren't there. Everybody deserted him but John. How do you know it was John? How do you know it was John? Well, that's how John has referred to himself throughout the whole, all of his writings. Which is what? The disciple who Jesus loved. Why would he refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved and not John? I think you mentioned it last week that... She's listening. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, wasn't that right? Yeah. <laughs> um, that, um, you know, there's a lot of persecution going on right now and that um, it's very dangerous to refer to yourself as like, hey, I was there, I did this, I did that, you know. Yep. He was... When did he write this? Remember, um, quick timeline. <clears throat> I don't want to make a big deal about this. Let's let's say we're somewhere around. So this is one A.D. There is no zero. <clears throat> this is a hundred A.D. We think that Jesus is. This is all happening around thirty-three A.D. When is this gospel being written? Do we think? Ninety-five to ninety-five. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I go to college. <laughs> When is that's that's a long time after this? That's decades later. Okay, so in the la- the very end of the first century, we think which Gospel is decades of after Paul's some of Paul's letters, yes. if not all of them, which is all right here. This is Paul. The first writings that we have in our our canon of the New Testament are written by Paul in his letters, not the Gospels. John is writing this decades later during a, per- a period of increased persecution of the Christians. I've made this point before. The Christians went through several ups and downs or phases of persecution during the Roman occupation. The first happens right after Jesus dies with the stoning of Timothy. That is the first severe persecution of the Jews by the, uh, I'm sorry, the first severe persecution of Christians by the Jews happens right here. Towards the end of the first century, oh, uh, sorry, I wrote this wrong. Towards the end of the first century, we have another big persecution of Christianity, this time by the Romans. John, it, we come to learn later, has been exiled to a desert island called Patmos in the Aegean Sea by the Roman Empire because of his sayings and his beliefs in Jesus Christ. One reason we think John wrote this is because he doesn't want people to know he wrote it. Because as soon as this letter gets out and it says John the Apostle, everyone is going to know exactly who that is, and they're going to go find him and kill him. And I think John is trying to make the point, um, yes, I wrote this. I'm not going to put my name in it. And remember, none of the Gospels are signed. They're all anonymous. And I think it's for that reason. He's buying himself some time by not, compl- by not identifying him as the author of this, but, but as soon as this is written and circulated in the Mediterranean, everyone comes to realize that it was John the Apostle who wrote this. What else do you see here? And again, I, I don't like to really bring this kind of thing up because it's not really conclusive. <laughs> so he's being anonymous and referring to himself. He is also anonymous with one of the attendees of the crucifixion. Who is that? This is verse 25. His mother's sister. Why didn't he name her? 
Why wouldn't he name her? He named Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Why didn't he name his mother's sister? Could be that everyone else was dead and that person was still that alive. Would, that would give away the anonymity of who's writing it. And why would that be? Because that's his name. Oh, this is it. This is exact. You are thinking just like a scholar. <laughs> Scholars look at this and go, holy crap, wait a minute. You're saying that Mary had a sister who is now unnamed, and it's being written by an author who himself is being unnamed. Many scholars are convinced John is the first cousin of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't want the world to know that his mother, Mary's sister, is, is related. Now, there is no conclusive evidence that this is true. And let me warn you again that, that this is a little bit of supposition. But a critical scholar looks at that and goes, that's, that's a red flag right there. John may have been first cousins with Jesus, much like John the Baptist was first cousins with another sister, Elizabeth. The mother of John is named what? Do you remember what her name is? Wife of Zebedee? It's the name of another very infamous woman in the New Testament. Starts with an S and ends in Alame. Salome. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Brian, um, is, is John, uh, does John keep this anonymous? Um, is like anything in the back of his head of like, you know, they just killed Jesus for, yeah. you know, trying to start a revolution, mm -hmm. you know, I'm his, you know, really close to him, I'm his cousin, you know, do they feel like I might try to take over like a family business here? Absolutely. I think that's, that's, that is a very logical thing to, to assume. <clears throat> You know, John also, I mean, he had uh, connections with the high priest in yep. Sanhedrin. You remember that. That's great. Yep. Um, which allowed Peter to get access into the courtyard yep. where Caiaphas and Annas lived. So you weren't here last week, but you remember that. That's very good. I've read it somewhere. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> what else do you Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Again? Right. Yeah. What is he, how does he refer to his mother? This is also a kind of an interesting thing. Now, your, your translation, verse, what is it, 26, may say, dear woman. Dear woman, here is your son. Why didn't he say mom? Mother, here is your son. Why wouldn't he say it that way? What does this imply to you? Gune, in the Greek, or gunai, which is the vocative, meaning I'm addressing someone by a name or title, woman. It's not as, as impersonal as you might take it from the English. A man would refer to his wife as his woman. This is my woman, my gune. You could also refer to it as a close friend or associate as a woman, gune. He does not refer to his own mother as mother. What does this suggest to you, the relationship of Jesus to his mother? He knows it's not his uh, biological mother. It is his biological mother. Yeah, well, biological. Okay. I, but yep. he's, you know, of, he's part of the Trinity, right? So, I don't know. What do we know about Jesus' relationship with his family? Remember, the Gospel writers are pretty clear about how Jesus interacted with his family members. In his fact, his mother. Yeah, his brothers thought he was nuts. And so did his mother. At one point, they go to a house in which Jesus is preaching and healing, and they, they come and say, 
we want you to come out and come back home with us because we think you're out of your mind. Now, we all have this glowing Luke-based view of Mary, the mother of God, as she was in on the whole thing, and she believed everything that, that was told to her, and that she, her and Jesus were best buddies, right? They went shopping every weekend, you know, to, to Gap, and they maybe got their, their mani-pedi every, every other Friday together, right? No, that didn't happen. According to the evidence that we have of the New Testament, there was friction between well, Jesus and his family. The thing is, yes. Mary is a Jew <clears throat> yep. in the first century. She grew up knowing who the Messiah would yes. be. And yep. she does know that, you know, angels came to her and said that yep. she was going to give birth to the Messiah. That has to have a lot of conflicting things in her mind, you know. She thinks he's going to get, like, be like a warrior and enemies. You know, but it's then she sees how he's behaving and it's very disconnected with what she thought it would be like. She's in the same boat, folks, as everyone else in this period. This is not who she thought this was going to be. She thought he, he was going to be the savior of their people. W remember the conversations that she has had and, and some of the disciples have had with Jesus. As soon as you're on the throne, we want you to pick who are going to be the two disciples who are going to be on the throne next to you. Folks, they were thinking this was an earthly kingdom where Jesus was going to be the guy on the throne in Jerusalem. And, and I agree with you. I think that Mary is no different than the others. She's no different than us. She has her view of who Jesus, she thinks Jesus is. And when it turns out Jesus is different than we all think he is, it really messes with our head. She's thinking she's going to move on up to the east side. <laughs> Remember I said there's the lower district in Jerusalem? You don't want to live in the lower district. This is, I'm not going to call out names of cities in America where you would not want to live. Think of one of those, okay? This, this is, this is the lower, or lower quarter. She lives here. She, this is where Mary would live if she lived here. She wants to be on the top. She wants to be on the top. Everyone wants to be on the top. They want to be in charge. They want to have money. Mary has lived her whole life poor. And Joseph probably has been dead for a while. I mean, he exits stage left pretty quick in, in the writings of everything. And by all accounts... He's been gone for a while. He's been gone a while. What are the options for an unmarried yeah. or widowed woman in the first century in Judea? And the firstborn, yeah. which is Jesus, yes. is supposed to be taking care yes. of her, and he's off wandering around Galilee. So good. Plus, Jesus is very separate. You know, Jesus knows that he is the Son of God. He knows that he's the Messiah. He already is separate. He's like, I'm not of this world. Like I, like probably the things that. His whole family cares about are the things that we care about, you know. Like we mm -hmm. are very worldly and very like caught up in our daily day to day life. And Jesus was like outside of that, yeah. you know. He wasn't caught up in like, you know. Building so what did he say when when they said your mother and brothers are here? Yep. And he responded, you know, basically said they're not my mothers and brothers. Yes. My family's here. My family's. Here. Hey, how do you think that went over? <laughs> <laughs> in the in the house of Joseph after that. That is brilliant. Because you, we are always offered this horizontal way of thinking, right? When it's that's just that's the human side of things. The, the spiritual side of things is the vertical way of thinking, right? So, so we get caught up in things like Second Amendment right. and Planned Parenthood. 
see, that's the horizontal thing. The vertical thing is, is, is it, it's just so much more, the spiritual warfare is just so much more than, than like what, what we see happening in our human existence. <coughs> I think that's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> you must say, if I say it, I'm your, I'm your husband, but he's saying it, so it's true. <laughs> I want you to look at some of this here. And so, not I, I want to put this to rest. Um, you know, um, obviously Jesus cares about her, so he wants John to take care of her. And the church fathers and church history records that after this, at some point, they moved to Ephesus. Uh, John lives a long time in Ephesus. Mary may have died there. Um, well, then that yeah. might contribute to why John was the only disciple that actually lived a full life. Take care of my mom. Because I need someone to take care of her. That way. Don't let him die. You know. yeah. <laughs> Everyone else died a horrible death, you know? So. <laughs> a few more things I want to point out here, and, and then we can, we can wrap up. Um, <clears throat> Just a few technical things that I want to make sure we're, we're very clear about. Golgotha means the place of the skull in Aramaic. We're not really sure where all of this happened. Now, when I draw my fancy maps, this is kind of where we think things happened. Remember, all of this was destroyed and built over for 2,000 years. Golgotha means the place of the skull. It was called the place of the skull. It was a limestone quarry. It was the hill of a limestone quarry which is a nice place to have a public execution because one of the main roads coming into Jerusalem, they all kind of went through here. There's the garden gate, there's all these gates and all these roads coming in to Jerusalem. You tended to come in from the west because this is a big valley. And so very few people actually came in through. They all came in through here. This is a great place to have an execution. You see it for miles, okay? And that was kind of the point of the execution. I wants everyone to know what had happened here called the place of the skull not because there were skulls lying all about that's that's bullcrap um, it's it's because in antiquity this was referred to as the place where Adam was buried and his skull was buried and so the Jews referred to this as the place of Adam's skull um, Calvary is the Latin for Golgotha if you're a Greek it's kephalion which means your head or your skull so they wanted a public execution. You see here, P Pilate is sticking it to him again. Watch what he does. <laughs> he goes, where is it here? I want a sign fastened to the top of the cross that says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. What did the Jews say? No, 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 we didn't say that. We said that he said he was King of the Jews. Pilate hates him. It's like, no, I'm going to put King of the Jews because I and hate you people. Hebrew, Three languages. And Greek. So everybody Anyone who can read can is going to be able to read this. He is sticking it to him. Well, well and like, how big yeah. is this sign? Like, oh, no, think that he said this. Like, it's a sign. They're Why not going to, like, write in this discourse. Yeah. On, you know. Let's talk about crucifixion real quick. Um, one of the most heinous forms of, of death. And make no mistake about it, Jesus was probably flogged twice, once before his trial and once after. In all likelihood, folks, it was the flogging that, that killed him. Um, he was already so mortally wounded he couldn't carry his cross. And when he finally is nailed to the cross, he dies within a few hours. He gives up his spirit willingly, but he dies much, much quicker. Typically, long story short, crucifixion is an ancient form of torture and murder started by the Assyrians. Um, it took many different forms. You, 
started with impaling on a pole. So a person would be <coughs> literally stuck on a very sharp pole and they would just, they would just solely sit there and die. Um, it turned into nailing people to a pole. There were all different forms. It could have been a pole. It could have been a, a cross beam at the top. There were kind of the small t that we have come to know as Christians as the cross. There were X's. Every creative way you can possibly think of was implemented here. Very early in Christian art, these two forms pop up immediately. There are no single pole forms or crosses like X's here. <clears throat> and so it's thought that Jesus was in fact crucified on, on two poles. One was a cross beam. It's not really that important. Remember, there's, there's some groups like Jehovah's Witnesses that, in, that misread the Greek because stauros <clears throat> means to crucify on a pole. A pole can refer to a cross, okay, or a tree. He was hung from a tree. The saying he was hung from a tree means you could be, it, it often means you were crucified. Crucified. Judas hung himself on a tree and his entrails spilled out. There are many scholars that read that as he didn't go to the naval store and buy a rope and fashion his, his fancy knot and go throw it over a tree limb and hang himself like you would imagine on a gallows. There are many scholars that say, no, he went out, he found a, he found a pole and he impaled himself on it and hung himself in the field on it and his entrails spilled out. And that's what we mean by he hung himself. <clears throat> we don't know which one is true, but that is certainly legitimate. Jesus certainly crucified probably on a T or a cross-shaped cross. He dies within hours. The soldiers came later to break the legs of the men who were still on it. Why would they break the legs? Because then they could take them down. <clears throat> Not to take them down. <clears throat> they are still alive. If, you're, if you still have your legs intact, you're hanging on a cross, you can push yourself up with your legs to breathe. And when your legs get weak, you sink and, you, and your body basically cuts off the air and blood supply to your brain, causing you to you know, push yourself back up again. This is an agonizing death. In order to hasten death, the Romans would just break your legs. You can't push yourself back up anymore and you would suffocate within minutes. They wanted them off the cross because it was almost the Sabbath and it was almost the Passover. Which is ridiculous when you think about it, because it's like, oh, by the way, can you do something horrible to these people so we can go worship God? <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you. It's <laughs> a good point. I mean, I don't want to be unclean. So that makes that yeah. It's kind of true, right? Yeah. Can we get this going? Um, I need the church. The author, thank you. The author goes, this man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth. Whoa. All of a sudden, he's putting that in. Why didn't he put it in for any of the other crazy things that have happened? Why did, what does that tell you about what's going on? Well, it, I'm, there must be talk, which we do know that there was yes. talk. Of that, like Jesus didn't really die, you know, like he just was asleep or whatever, you know, and that yep. he didn't actually raise from the dead. And so John is there. saying, "Look, I saw the blood and water come out. He was hundred percent dead." The <laughs> author is telling you he was an eyewitness, folks. Luke wasn't an eyewitness. Mark wasn't an eyewitness for the we think for the most part. This author is trying to tell you he saw it and it was real, and he is he is refuting 
What is happening? As time goes on, the stories get more wild and more wrong. And he's trying to, and maybe this is another reason he wrote it. He's like, I've heard way too much rumor and lies. I'm going to set the record straight. And John's already been boiled at that point. He's, I mean, how many times has he been near death? And he's in his 90s now. Yep. It's probably like, well, what are they going to do to me now? I'm going to die soon anyway. What are they going to do with me, right? Yeah. yeah, come and get it, right? I'm 90. Um, the tomb, real quick. I want, I want to impress upon you the fact that what, what Jesus was buried in was unusual. Most criminals who were executed were either thrown into common graves or they were buried um, uh, in, in a small rocky tomb that many people would be buried in along with them until their, their flesh rotted and their, it was just bones and then their bones would be taken out and thrown away. Jesus is buried in a new tomb which is probably something like a hollowed out, if you want to think of it, in the limestone, a hollowed out room. Okay, so here's the rock. You go in through this hole. Um, it may have been more circular. There is probably a little bit of a pedestal directly inside in which this arch in the, in the rock has been cut away and his body would be lied or laid on that shelf that has been hewn out of the rock we think it was directly across from the entrance because when the women come the next, you know, while well, on Sunday morning to prepare the body for burial, they don't have to enter the tomb, but they can see directly in and see that the, the clothes are there, but Jesus isn't. This is absolutely a tomb of a wealthy person. Um, that the, there's only, we think, only one burial spot within it. It, it sounds like it's new. And the, and the fact that it had a stone that you could roll Archaeologists say this is extremely rare in, it, in, in the first century in Judea. What does that mean? It means this was probably the tomb of one of the most wealthy men in the region, a very, very wealthy man, who the gospel records as Joseph of Arimathea, a Sanhedrin member and a secret believer in Jesus, along with Nicodemus, his friend, who we talked about in the other gospels and in this of the guy who came and asked about being born again twice. Seventy-five pounds. That's about Seems ten like times the usual amount. It's <laughs> about Seems ten times the usual amount. Yeah. That, yeah. Yep. Okay. Is that all of the stuff I wanted to cram down? Um, I think I want to leave you with one thing. Deuteronomy twenty-one twenty-three. You can look that up. Um, essentially, this says that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed by God. Why did the Jewish leaders want Jesus hung on a tree? Why did they want him hung on a cross? Because Deuteronomy says, any man that you hang on a tree is cursed. They wanted this as a message to their fellow Jews. We cursed this guy. He is not one of us. He has no legitimacy to what he said. How did that work? <laughs> well, they're misinterpreting, the yeah. they're misinterpreting that because the law is from God, not theirs. You don't get to claim the, the cursing from God when you apply your mm -hmm. law. You only get to claim the cursing from God when you apply his law. Nice. They get the double benefit here, too, of 
you know, any of these straggling believers, if they're still out there, guess what? Here's your king. Yeah. He's That's hanging it. up on a tree. That's it. He's dead. He's yep. gone. You're under our control now. At that moment, at that moment, you better believe that the Jewish leadership thought, we are done with this. We are good. Thank, you know, thank Yahweh. We got rid of this guy. This was the beginning of the end for their leadership, for the temple, and for Judaism as they would know it. Because as we will read in the next chapter, something amazing will happen from this, something remarkable, and not just religiously. In the whole history of the world, there has been no religion like Christianity that in the first century grows explosively like no other religion has ever done before. The leadership thought that they had put an end to this problem. They fell right into God's hands. This was preordained to happen. This was meant by God to happen in this way. And as awful and as gruesome as it was, Jesus paid the penalty for all of us. All of our sins were hung on that tree that day. Make no mistake about it. Well, like when you were talking about they could have like killed him in the middle of the night yeah. and then they, it would have been on them. And But like God wanted it to be as visible as possible so that everyone could know, like the most people could know what was happening. He didn't want this to happen in secret because then, you know, we could all know and have as many witnesses as possible to know exactly what happened, that he died for us. I always find myself <clears throat> conflicted in my heart when I read this or think about this or Easter times usually. Because I, there's something in me that wants to just sob about this death, this the crown of thorns and the flogging and all of that stuff. And it's just, it breaks my heart to, to think of my Jesus being treated in this way. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other side that it's like, but if he hadn't been, then I would be. Mm-hmm. You know? I make the point, you are Barabbas. You are Barabbas. Yeah. You're Barabbas. You were set free. And someone else, and you were a thief, and a liar, and a murderer, and an adulterer, and all the other things. Jesus went and took the penalty for you. Barabbas got to go free. He's got free. So did you. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.